Hey folks, Jeff Woods here. We wanted to let you know, pay attention in the middle of this episode, we have a really exciting update around a founding member's opportunity that we are going to have for a brand new event concept that we'll be launching this year. Head on over to theonething.com slash summit to learn more. This is The One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. I'm your host, Kaylin Less. Over the past few years, as we've hosted several couples goal-setting retreats, we've discovered a very common challenge. In most relationships, one person is goal-setter and one is not. One is more growth-minded and the other might naturally be more skeptical. I am a born skeptic and I'm partnered with a man who seeks growth voraciously and without hesitation. The born believer in him will try anything once, even if it sounds crazy. Whereas my skeptic shows up to poke holes in things and ensure that it's credible. I want to understand the downside. While we make a good team and there is nothing wrong with a healthy skepticism, it's important to examine how your natural state can influence your ability and your partner's ability to grow. Because the truth is that if one person is growing and the other is stuck, the delta between you gets bigger and bigger every day. So here's the question. How do you grow together? The conversation you are going to hear today originally happened on the One Thing Monthly webinar. This is a webinar series where each month we interview a best-selling author live and give you the chance to interact with them and ask questions. Many of you heard episode 195 with Rachel Hollis titled, Stop Apologizing for Your One Thing. This past month, Jay Papasan interviewed her husband, Dave Hollis. Being married to someone like Rachel, who is on a big personal growth journey, was tough to keep up with. While she gained courage and momentum, he felt unfulfilled and overcome with fear. And until he confronted the fact that who he was was getting further and further away from who he wanted to be, he was stuck. In this conversation, you'll discover how her example became a rope that he could pull himself out of his funk, debunk the myths that were holding him back, and get out of his own way. With that, let's get into this conversation between Jay Papasan and Dave Hollis. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch, snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Hey, everybody. This is Jay Papazan, co-author of The One Thing. Super excited to get to host the last One Thing webinar of the year with, and he just magically appeared, the Mr. Dave Hollis. Dave, welcome to our webinar. Oh, Jay, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. A quick thank you. I heard about you multiple times because y'all were talking about The One Thing on your podcast. So I just want to thank you for giving us a little love to your huge audience. 
and made it a logical invite for the launch of your book, Get Out of Your Own Way. So super excited to have you. I just want to engage your audience real quick. I'd like to see a show of X's and Y's based on, let's go with a, a gender question. If you're here and you're female, give us a Y. If you're here and you have an X chromosome, give us an X. I just kind of want to see the balance of our audience here. X, Y, X, Y. seems like we're about 50-50 here, Dave. All right. a lot of X. That's, That's awesome. I everything it. I'm used to. I mean, living inside of Rachel Hollis's world, there's just a lot of Ys. And I'm here for Ys. I'm also here for Xs. Let's be clear. I love that. I love that. And that was one of the things I was just curious to see that the audience make up would be. And that there's no agenda other there than my curiosity, folks. And I love some people that just put neutral there. So God bless you all. And we're all here to learn from me. Dave, real quick, I'd love to hear. Um, I got to read this book this week. It's an advanced reader's copy. The rest of you um, will get a chance on March 10th um, to enjoy this. It's extremely well written. Um, I think that you and Rachel both have made an art form out of being both vulnerable and funny. So I just, as an author to author, I want to compliment you on a job well done. And I don't say that to everybody. It's actually, I laughed out loud. I teared up. It's actually extremely well written. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. What was, what's the origin story? When did you say, you know what? I'm going to write a book, dadgummit, because it's a lot of work to write one. It's a lot of work. I'll tell you what, my uh, story starts with Rachel having written a book that was a massive trigger for a ton of anxiety in my life, and that is Girl, Wash Your Face. I, in the first chapter of this book, actually tell the story of the first time I was handed a version of her book where as it was printed out on paper and binder clipped, I'm reading it at, uh, on, a, on our way to a trip, a vacation with our four young kids. It starts provoking every anxiety in, in my brain because of how honest and transparent she's decided to be. And at the time, unbelievably, I got done reading it and did everything in my power to try and convince her, in fact, to not release the book. Because wow. I was at the time... Uh, still preoccupied with the optics management that we'd been doing in trying to convince everyone that everything in our life was great. Thank you very much. And here she's telling all of these secrets and, uh, and truths truly to what was actually happening behind the scenes. And I thought, man, you're putting our family at risk. You're putting yourself and your brand at risk. You're blowing me up in chapter five. And uh, like, there's, there's things that just aren't good here. And truly having been now the beneficiary of thousands and thousands of letters from people who had uh, some breakthrough in their life afforded because of some of the transparency that she stepped into writing this book with, I turned completely into a believer in the power of vulnerability and authenticity and uh, started asking a set of questions of what it might mean if I were to truly reach for the kind of impacts or even a fraction of the impact that she were to have had with her book by being honest about my own struggles, what it could mean for the audience who gets to read it. And so I started down that path. I'll tell you, uh, I went into it thinking, hey, I'm a pretty good writer. I bet it's not that hard to write a book. It's hard to write a book. And uh, especially if you decide to write one, uh, as I intended with this, that was going to actually just be really, really honest about uh, all of the hard, hard things in reaching for a really exceptional life. And so um, I kind of went there. My 98-year-old grandmother, just real quick, uh, she turned 98 last Tuesday. I called Grandma Lee. Grandma, how you doing? 98, you're still ticking. What's going on? And I had sent her this advanced reader copy. The first thing out of her mouth on her birthday was, 
you didn't leave any of the bad parts out, like the first words. <laughs> so, mission accomplished. Love it. I love it. And you leave right off. I had to look up, and then you quickly told me. I didn't know what a handle of vodka was, right? <laughs> um, you quickly got very vulnerable and raw, and that you decided to drink vodka while reading this book as a way to cope. Yeah. Um, the, the title, um, just to let people know, you haven't read the book, obviously. It's centered around, um, is it 20 lies? Yep. 20 lies that are between you and uh, your best self. And I guess that's, you know, get out of your own way is to kind of get that thinking out of the way. And right off the bat, you showed how you were kind of resistant to anything self-help, like going to these conferences, all of that. You had some baggage around that, that whole idea of the whole self-improvement, which you guys are champions of now. Oh, yeah. Um, which is That's wild. A, the contrast between who I was coming into the end of my previous life, where I lived in a corporate environment, I managed expectations, I curated feeds on Instagram and Facebook to tell people what I thought they needed to hear rather than reflection of who I really was, to now becoming really comfortable doing the things that are the exact opposite of them. In a, in a, in a lot of ways, if you have not read or, or heard of Rachel Hollis, she's my wife. And she wrote this book, Girl, Wash Your Face, that was her version of 20 lies that were keeping in her, her in her way. And by finding a truth that made those lies unbelievable, she was able to become a better version of herself. I've written a version of this book, except in my life and my wiring and my life experience, my family of origin, I am a born skeptic to her born believerness. right? She saw self-help or personal development or growth as something that you, if you are a good human being, just reach for naturally. It is not an indictment on you not being good enough already. You just are in pursuit always of being better tomorrow because that's what good people do. I have always, previous to the last couple of years, seen the idea of needing to get help, find help, reach for something better than where I am today as an indictment on not being good enough where I was. Uh, she's been a growth mindset person akin to that uh, from the word go. And I identify as someone who has historically been more fixed mindset oriented, whether it was through uh, how I thought about challenging myself or criticism or feedback or trying things, failing and learning from them as being good in her mind and bad in mine. Uh, a lot of the storytelling that I do comes through the lens of someone who is now a recovering fixed mindset person who now in embracing growth mindset thinks differently. And motivation is really a huge difference in how our wiring and her storytelling are different. She has this internal, intrinsic uh, kindling that just is always a glow. And I have to find a way to engineer, uh, hack my motivation on an almost every hour basis. And so when I talk about getting out of my own way, it's through the lens of skepticism, more fixed than growth mindset, and more external motivation to uh, the way that she's wired. And so uh, the, the the first point, though, is I did not believe myself to be a person who could ever benefit from anything that was oriented around personal development and now work exclusively in a field that is trying to convince people that there is, in fact, benefit in investing in yourself, in spending time with people who figured things out that you haven't, in reading the books and listening to the podcasts and everything else. I love that. And just for the people listening, um, I identify with that. I look at my wife, who's an optimist, and I tend to be a little bit more skeptical. Um, I don't ever 
conflate skepticism, which can be very healthy, with with cynicism. Sure. But that skepticism has kept me away from a lot of opportunities. So if you mirror Dave's experience, um, would you just give us a me too in the comments? I'm just curious because everything you just said resonated with me. Yeah. The very first time I walked into a mastermind, the very first time I walked into a motivational seminar, like my radar was on. I was looking for something that I could pick apart. And that was really probably some armor. Lots of me too's. Thank you. Thank you for participating. Um, lots of me too's out there because you're looking for a reason to not have to go through that journey was my self-discovery. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I originally actually started writing the book and thinking about these things against the backdrop of some traditional masculinity tropes, societal definitions of what real men do and don't do. And, uh, and in, in part was thinking, oh, I'll, I'll write a, a male version of her more female book. And uh, really, there's just universalism in each of the lies that I end up, end up diving into. And so it really ends up not being so much about whether you are more masculine or feminine on the, on the spectrum, but truly, do you identify a little bit more with skepticism, a little more of that mindset difference and a little different way of being motivated? And what's interesting in, in our community, we're trying to serve on an every single day basis, offer up tools if you want to use them. Hopefully they lead you to a set of breadcrumbs that can help you change your life. And as much as her inspiration and motivation through the lens of how she's wired is something people certainly gravitate toward, wiring wise, I think there's as many or more people inside of this community that we're hanging out with on the regular that can identify with, man, I'm challenged with motivation or I'm challenged with, with the way I think about growth or challenge or failure being for me. So yeah, Dave, let's keep talking about those things. I can be inspired and recognize that it's hard sometimes to convince myself that I should put myself out there and look to fail for the opportunity of learning from that failure. Love it. I love it. It's like the reluctant uh, personal development person, which is me. You've you've opened another door into this world. Um, we had a comment from Audrey. Um, thank you for that, because you're using this language. And I, I assume you've read Dr. Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, this idea of growth versus fixed mindset. Um, absolutely. I love that she called that out. Um, it's a fabulous book. I like. I gave it to my children's teachers. It was that important to me. I reference this book and, and I get the question all the time, especially from women who are interested in like, what's the first book you might offer to my partner who's a man to read as he's beginning his journey in personal development and Mindset from Carol Dweck and Power of Habit from Charles Duhigg are the first two books that I always suggest only because in my own personal experience, getting a handle on my mindset and then understanding the importance of my habit loop were really the first two critical, critical things that I had to really embrace and adopt to move away from who I was to who I needed to be. Well, let's zero in on that. I want to run with that just a little bit because one of the questions I had prepped for you is what advice would you give to um, the people on this webinar if they're in a partnership with someone where there is this differential, right? Um, handing someone a book is a start, but maybe they don't read books. But what's the best advice we could give them um, you're on the journey and maybe you have a reluctant partner. Well, I will speak from experience because my wife was on a journey in personal development for a couple of years before my skepticism and cynicism uh, turned into believership. I, uh, at the time, I was in this weird bridge from 30 to 40. And in that bridge, 
found myself in a professional environment where I stopped growing. And so I had not the insight at the time that this connection between growth and fulfillment existed as much as it does. And so in the midst of my funk, where on the outside, so many things professionally seemed like they were great, uh, were the converse of how I was feeling inside, unfulfilled, unchallenged, not growing, and in the opposite of growth is death. I was dying. And so here, my wife is starting to go to personal development conferences and reading these books and listening to podcasts, and every day is becoming a little bit better version of herself while I'm descending into a ditch of my own device. And I have to, like, right every day, I'm bristling at the fact that she is waking up on fire earlier and earlier, ready to go charge her day as I am less motivated and feeling more more funky. And uh, in the midst of that, she had to make a choice. Am I going to uh, try and push on him? The tools that I know have been profound in her own life for helping her overcome some anxiety and overcome some limiting beliefs and overcome or uh, am I going to shame him or rub in his face the fact that this is working? Or am I just going to go charge this in my life and hope that my example can one day be a rope that he might use to get out of this trench? And luckily, it was the latter that she chose because it finally got to the place where in my desperation for needing something to get better, I had as an example for a good 18 months worth of time, this woman who was modeling the power of investing in personal development and learning from people and masterminds and reading the books and listening to the podcast. And as much as my skeptic's mind didn't want to give her any credit, the proof was too powerful. It was impossible to not see. And for me, I took a, a like my practical, logical brain, wanted to understand some of the why. I was wired the way I was, why I was even rejecting some of what I, just in observing how she was thriving, was pushing back against the proof in my face that it might actually be something for me. And so my first step, uh, it actually started at therapy because I wanted to get under the hood and understand a little bit of what it was about my childhood or the way that I was through the models of masculinity or my dad or whatever, like running up against the even ability to believe in some of what would maybe work for me. That acted as a key that started a whole host of other things down the road. But I guess, long story, my best advice, if you are someone who is reaching for more, and if you're here, you already are, and you're in a partnership with someone who isn't, the best thing you can do for them is not be tempted to come back down to their level when it makes them uncomfortable, not rub it in their face, just keep getting better, keep doing work, be great, and in your greatness, show them a way to ultimately become great themselves. That's great. Role model of success. You can't push someone you love. And I, I saw that in the writing too. So that's great. Thank you for that advice. Because I was looking up and going, I've been there. I've been on the receiving end of this as well. And ultimately, like you said, the evidence just up and overpowers your skepticism and you're willing to take that first step. So it's funny, you get to the flip side, you go through your therapy. And one of our readers, I was asking our, our fans, like, what can I ask him? What can I ask him? And I was writing down the question that one of on Instagram, I was a little bit multitasking and reading the chapter and saw your ask you this question. And it's, what's your greatest fear? And oh. this is kind of from the other side. Like you get to the other side and you're on this journey. Um, he was looking for scorpions or monsters in the closet. But can you share that story a little bit oh, yeah. and, and what the answer is? 
Yeah. So my, I have four kids, which is like a thousand kids. Uh, uh, but at the time, my nine, seven, and four year old sons and I were out back. We had this routine in our jacuzzi where they were allowed to ask me anything at all. Nothing's off limits. I will answer just what they've asked and nothing more. And uh, and one of them says innocently, "What's your biggest fear?" And I again, like I think they were they were reaching for like tarantulas or scorpions or monsters in the closet. And out of my mouth falls, my biggest fear is not living up to my potential. And in a beautiful way, just the words coming out of my mouth created a bit of leverage that had not previously existed because now it was out of my unconscious and in front of my face. And it changed the way I started asking questions as I'm doing this work in therapy, as I'm starting down this path of personal development of how leverage against my greatest fear could be used to kickstart my motivation. And so I, against the backdrop of that conversation, ended up going down a couple of paths. One, a visualization at the time I was just around 40 years old. So 20 years in the future, I'm turning 60. I'm sitting around a table. I've got all of my now adult children raising glasses, representing in toasts what they are most proud of in my accomplishments over the two decades from that mm -hmm. moment in Jersey. And their answers are a reflection of how much work I've chosen to do on myself. And the idea of them standing and not having much to say, or them maybe not even choosing to attend the dinner because of not being interested in raising a glass, man, that was motivating. But also, in real time, Rachel and I were having hard conversations. I mean, I give a lot of credit to this woman as my wife and best friend. We've also decided to be accountability partners in a way that is at times really hard, but most times through that difficulty produces the greatest fruit. And we were having a conversation at the same time as this revelation that was about the trajectory of our life and that she, in her pursuit of growth every day, growth being the number one commodity in her life, truly, she is driven by being better tomorrow than today. If I maintained a trajectory of static status quo, which was even a lie, I was descending, not growing, the gap, the delta between who she was and who I was and it asked a set of questions. Would we still be going on dates after a year? Would we still be making out after two? Would we still be married after three? And I knew the answer to all three. And in a crazy way, the negative visualization in both that setting at my 60th birthday party or the possibility of exchanging our kids, getting into like a drinking problem that's really bad, the overweight, unshaven version of myself. That was as motivating and as much leverage that I could tap into as letting my kids down. I just, I attach myself to both. Some people can paint a pretty picture and man, it gets them out of bed, they wanna go. I was someone that needed an ugly picture, like something that was just the worst case scenario and it lit me on fire. I love that. And um, if you agree with that, just, just the downside motivates me. Just say yes in the comments. I'm just trying to make sure. I'm kind of seeing. I'm I'm catching this vibe, and we even talk about that in a lot of our sales training. Like a lot of times, people are always attracted to the upside. They're motivated by the downside. Yeah. And I don't know if that's because I'm a, a skeptic like you, but I look at what's the cost of failure, and that I am more interested in avoiding that than I am winning. 
And so I identify with everything you just said. And one of my key moments in my journey with my wife, Wendy, was this idea that I was losing her respect. Mm. And that was heartbreaking to me. Oh, yeah. I thought that she wouldn't respect me anymore. That is that thing that catalyzes me to come in and work harder and harder and harder. And that's, you have a whole chapter about phoning it in. And when I'm reading that, right, I'm thinking about that story in my life. Um, I'll just tell you that. Then I want you to tell your story around phoning it in. This is a good lesson for everyone. Um, I had to write a book I didn't want to write. It was on a subject I knew wouldn't sell. And lifetime total copies is still less than 3,000. I called it right. And I go, went home to my wife and I said, I don't want to write this book. This is the wrong bike to write, book to write. So I'm just going to do it really fast. And she looked at me like a good accountability partner can and said, I hear you. You tell your kids that you're an author. You tell everyone in the world that you're an author. And it sounds an awful lot like you're just going to mail it in. Uh, and the disappointment in her voice broke my heart. Yeah. And it catalyzed me. It's just the best poor selling book that I've ever written. I'll just tell you that. Yeah, it turned it around. It created it creates motivation. It's interesting. It, it, like I, I've really been spending a lot of time lately trying to identify the times in my life where I've been the least fulfilled or the least happy, so that I can really understand the circumstance, the ingredients that are responsible for having produced that feeling. And the times when I've been the most unhappy are the times when. I have represented an interest in being a thing. It, it could mm-hmm. be a great dad, it could be a great partner, it could be a great leader in my in work, a thought leader, whatever it is. But the the actual version of myself having shown up in a way that was less than has created an incongruence. There's dissonance that exists between who I've said I want to be, who I'm even telling people that I am, and who, when I fall asleep at night in the privacy of my own head, I know myself to actually be. That incongruence, that gap, that is the pain of shame and guilt and unfulfilled potential. And that idea of phoning it in, you know, and like when you're by yourself, when you're by yourself, looking at yourself in the mirror, when you're by yourself falling asleep at night, you know whether you've put in the kind of effort that you could have, that you've used the set of tools that you've been gifted, that unleashing them would be the gift this world needs. And if you are underutilizing them, that's one thing. But if you are representing the full utilization and you aren't, that dissonance, oh my goodness, it really does create such an unsatisfying feeling. And that, man, just the, the knowledge of knowing, that's when I have been the most unhappy. That's when I've been the least fulfilled, when I felt the worst and had the hardest time getting momentum. Now I can say, okay, there's a different kind of math. There's a different kind of equation that I need to apply. If I want to be these things, these are the conditions that I need to satisfy. And my transactional brain now really has come to appreciate this if-then equation because there's a price of entry to whatever it is that you say. And so if you say you want to be a fantastic partner, you want to have an exceptional relationship, then these are the conditions that you need to satisfy. There, it's It's hard because I think people want to be able to have all the things. Like I want to be able to have a lot of rest and uh, chase a lot of, and it's like, no, 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 no. It's a, it's a lot of what the one thing ends up being about, right? Like as you finish this year, you can, you can say that you want to pursue achieving the year end bonus because of going after that revenue goal. Or you can say, man, I really want to spend time at home and connect. If 
your objective is the year end sales goal, then the conditions that you have to satisfy may come at the expense of some of the rest that you might need. And the converse is true. If you want to go after the rest, some of those sales goals might end up coming at, at, at expense. But as long as you know the if then equation, you're able to really zero in on who you need to be to be who you say you want to be. I, I got to ask a follow up question there because I have an opinion on this and I want to know yours. When I notice there's a gap between who I purport to be and who I'm acting like, does it matter to you whether you're succeeding or failing or that just you're trying your best? Does that make sense? It it does make sense. I'll tell you this. The worst I've ever felt is when I have succeeded and not actually been doing the things that I was suggesting I needed to do. So like when I left Disney, I was the head of sales at the movie studio. I'd had a 17-year career. I had the benefit of the greatest leadership structure, the greatest team, the strongest brands. And I did not have to study hard to get very, very good grades. So I got the recognition, the title, the bonus, part of the academy. Like I had the things that the outside world, the trappings were, this is amazing. And because I wasn't having to do the work that someone should have to do to get those things, it made it even worse. Now, if I wasn't doing the work and wasn't succeeding, I think I could almost feel okay because then there was this causal relationship between effort and output. But when there's a disconnect between effort and output, you didn't try hard, you still got recognized as having been great. It exaggerates the false nature of you having represented that you were doing the work in the first place. That's when you feel the worst when you're by yourself. Oh, I love that. Thank you for going deeper. And that's that feeling. I think a lot of people, even great leaders, suffer from this idea that they're a phony, even when they're not. I've, um, I hadn't explored it from that angle of the results without the effort, because that's just like the definition of a phony. And you know it, but nobody else does. I've also found that if I'm trying, I'm being authentic, I say, all right, if you want to be a writer, you have to write it every day. If I'm sitting down and I'm trying my best, and even if crap's coming out, I can still hold my head up because I know I'm doing the activity. The results haven't gotten there yet. What I really feel bad is when I'm not walking the walk and I know I'm not walking the walk. Totally agree. And here's, I'll give you a real-time example. This is the the word I'm going to use sounds kind of ridiculous, but I have made this pivot into this work where beyond helping lead this team with my wife, I'm now writing books and doing coaching and standing on stages and doing, I'm teaching, right? And as a person who wants to be able to teach from a position of what I will, and this is the word, to be a thought leader, right? I am not someone who has been as voracious a reader in the history of my life as a true leader who stands on stages and shares thoughts would necessarily need to be. So I've had to do a little bit of this if then. If, Dave, in 2020, you want to have the best year of your entire life, you want to do a 25-city tour and stand on these six stages of the events we're throwing and have this coaching for 12 months and do these things, and you want to feel like the leader that you are telling people that you are, you are a thought leader, well, leaders are readers, buddy. So you better start reading these books because the dissonance that exists in saying that you are, but then not doing the work to back it up, that's where, that again, it's just like it crumbles underneath itself. And it, it, it would just be totally unsatisfying. Do I think this is the crazy thing? And I think you're probably the same way. Could you pull it off? 
right? If you can pull it off because you've been given some gifts and your ability to speak or you're you know, charismatic, the ability to pull it off but not do the work, again, is where if you have that and you don't do the work, it just doesn't feel satisfying even as you get the win. And so you've got to be able to back up the work. I think it's the difference between uh, enjoying the results and feeling fulfilled on the journey. That's real. right. That's when real. you're doing the work and you're putting the effort, the fulfillment shows up. Um, you hinted at something, all right? So your wife has done these two books and you've been in a support role or a leadership role on her team. You're now about to launch your book and you've got these other plans for you. Um, you have a whole chapter, chapter 14. And the lie is, um, it's all about your role doesn't change, right? Um, you guys are alternating roles. What does that look like? You know, How do you go from a Disney exec to a support role or a leadership role in her business? And now, how do you guys do traffic control so you know who needs support when? And you know, am I the CEO right now or am I the, the COO, right? Which yeah. one am I being? Well, it's it's a very it's been for us a very fluid thing. Uh, what's interesting is I will start first with the labeling, right? Labeling, interestingly, in this move from a role inside of traditional entertainment where there was there was status associated with a president title and a mouse on a card and a whole host of things, my title and how it might be perceived by the outside world when I was leaving two years ago made a lot of difference to me. And today does not matter at all. It's amazing what time will create for you and perspective around what actually matters. Um, the, the most important thing for us, number one, we work together. We are partners, best friends. We are married. And we are working inside of this business that has grown from four to 64 employees in the last uh, 17 months. So it's growing quick. That's right? it's a... Yeah. Yeah, head spinning, drinking out of a fire hydrant kind of thing. Um, we had to be very clear on where the strengths that we both bring to the business could be maximized and where the weaknesses that we both bring to the business could be minimized. And so we've done a lot of work on, hey, you with your practical, pragmatic operators, you know, more into finance, more into people, figuring out some of the working ways of the business you know, specialty, sick your skills there. And I, with my creative, more visionary bend to the business, I'm going to spend my time there. But last year for Rachel was a year that honestly, uh, in, now that it's done, it's amazing to uh, be on the other side of. She sold almost 4 million books. She had a lot of conferences, stood on 60 different stages, most of which involved a lot of travel, right? She survived something that I don't hope to repeat necessarily. And so my ability to be here and lead this team and grow the team and the locations and like that was important. And we're now pivoting, right? Because she will take more of that leadership role. She'll be running as CEO to my COO-ness, but also my transitioning to more of a creator role where I'll be on a book tour for 25 cities and I'm going to be doing more. Uh, in in the out front on stage personality side of this strange business that we operate in a way that honestly didn't feel terribly normal for me when I first transitioned a year and a half ago, but that now is something that I am very excited about in part because there is a complementary but very different style and version of what I think I can bring as a tool to this audience that helps, again, complement, but in a different way, serve the needs of, of the people that we're in community with. So it sounds like I'm hearing 
you guys are on the journey to mastery on y'all are just really cool good about communicating to each other um, based on your strengths and the timing of what each other needs which roles you need to play and y'all are very good about you know doing the chipmunk dance no after you no after you you just guys have you've worked out the communication so that the roles are at least clear is that what i'm hearing the the role the roles are clear and the like who's leading today is fluid and right. so they're right they, so we'll we'll have as many of the team all hands meetings that we're both up in front of but there are times when i'm being pulled into a writing window she's being pulled into a writing window i'm on the road she's on the road and so there's uh, you know there our styles that are different and the way that we are paying attention to the intricacies of the business certainly are different from more her on the creative experience side of the business, me more on the nuts and bolts of how things are shipping to and from or the cost of goods. But when it's all said and done, I try to uh, take a little bit more time before I tell her the practical implications of the crazy great big dream that she has than I maybe did at the beginning where I was like, no, that's a crazy idea. Hold on. We can't do that. Uh, I'm, I'm just taking more time now to do that. and she. Oh. Is pushing me, uh, maybe not as hard as she once was, into places that make me uncomfortable in a good way for the opportunity for me to grow, right? And so we, I think we've 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 become you know, certainly good at that. But we've also, I will say this: if you uh, intend on ever working with your partner or just in general, we had to embrace this idea of radical candor as a part of how we could make this thing work. Uh, Jill Scott has a great book and, and YouTube video, TED Talk, like uh, this idea of in real time addressing the things that come up that could, if not addressed, become bigger problems. And if not addressed for longer, fester and turn into something that spoils. We have had more hard conversations in the last 12 months than we'd had in the previous 12 years. And the frequency of those hard conversations have taken what now doesn't feel like a hard conversation at all, something that absolutely did feel like a hard conversation at the beginning. And so uh, we've just committed to really wading into and having hard conversations. I mean, I shared in, in the book, there's two different times where an email that she sent me that was the hardest, most direct, candid, constructive feedback kind of conversation. But I want to model that there is a way, if you are interested in an exceptional life or an exceptional business, to find an accountability partner that can punch you directly in your soul when you need to be punched in your soul in the interest of having you get out of your own way. I love it. I love it. And that radical can for the ability to be honest with each other. I've experienced this a little bit, but some of the stories you told in the book are I'm 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 yet to hit those milestones in our journey of candor, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. Um but it does get easier, right? It's funny, on oh, this journey sure. to growing big, you grow up and you get stronger and you get more resilient. And the first time you have to be the one to have the conversation, you're up all night, you're sweating over it, and then you didn't die, and it's a little easier the next time. So everybody listening, the conversations you're avoiding, um, it's actually more agonizing to push them into the future than to have them in a loving, honest way, and then move past them proactively. And you guys have done great. Can, can you tell the 3% story? Um, it's in that chapter. That yes. was, um, I oh. read it out loud to my daughter and wife this morning. I was like, oh my God, I've never heard anything like this. Um, and that's yeah, one way to tell you a truth. 
Yeah. Yeah. We have a, our production arm is called three, three percent productions. People always ask, what's that called? I'm like, read the book. Uh, so <laughs> what's interesting is part of what I thought my role in our relationship was, was to keep my wife or anyone, frankly, that I love from feeling disappointment. And so in an attempt to shine a light on the lie that is that is that's not the role of someone who is in a loving relationship. Sometimes disappointment is a vehicle for growth, but also sometimes your best intentions are actually going to manifest for the person you love in a way that totally undermines your actual interest in going in. So uh, my wife had come to me while I was still working at Disney, and she was building this business that she's been she'd been working on for the 15 years prior to us working together, and she said that she had this idea, which is not an unusual thing. She has an idea every morning, usually at five in the morning. And uh, this morning she said, I am going to become the host of a nationally syndicated cable television show. And I was like, on, on, on whose authority? I mean, I didn't say it, but I was like, <laughs> what, what reason do you believe that this will happen? This seems crazy. I didn't say these things. I said, in an attempt to try and manage her expectations, that there's probably like a million to one chance that that'll happen. And she said, a million to one, how little faith you have. And I said, okay, okay fine, fine. There's a 3% chance that this will happen. And she uh, gathered herself and uh, left. And I felt good for having managed her expectations for not getting ahead of herself, for not letting herself get her hopes up too high. Because if this didn't happen now, my job here was done. I kept her from feeling hurt by the fact that she tried and failed. And about four months later, she came back into our kitchen. As I walked in the door from work, there was a little box that had been wrapped on the kitchen table. And she said, hey, you got me a gift. And I, I made the face that you would make. Oh, what are you speaking of? I don't even remember getting you a gift, let alone wrapping it and setting it in front of you. What have I got you? She opened this small box. And inside of the box was a bracelet with a small charm. And on that small charm was stamped 3%. And she, in like the greatest act of passive aggression, <laughs> said, yes, I mean, masterclass, truly. Uh, look, I got this as a reminder on this day where I got confirmation that I will be the host of this show that is syndicated nationally on cable, that the person who believes most in me only gave me a 3% chance at achieving this audacious dream. So I'm just like serving crow in my mouth. Oh, thank you very much. And more than anything, the, like, the most important takeaway for me in retrospect was I, I really, as much as my intention was good, I wanted to keep her from feeling disappointment. I said two things. Uh, I said to her in suggesting that there was a 3% chance that I actually thought there was a 97% chance that she wouldn't succeed. I told her I did not believe in her or her dreams. So my well-intended expectation management really was an FU to my belief in her ability. And then beyond that, what I was saying beyond saying, uh, hey, I give you a 97% chance of not succeeding, I was saying, I don't think you're strong enough to endure the disappointment of not having this thing happen for having to try and manage your expectations in the first place. Which, if you know my wife at all, she is strong every single day of the week, twice on Sunday. Thank you very much. So it was idiotic of me to have suggested it. But 
um, man, naive me, caretaker me, peacekeeper me trying to manage her. Uh, that was not what she needed. And so the point of this you know, conversation and the way that it's written in, in here is like I had to rewire the way that my brain processed people, including and maybe most importantly myself, reaching for things with a lower chance of probability for the opportunity, even in failure, for what that failure might afford you in learning. And so now, I mean, shoot. This small business offers an opportunity for us to fail basically on the quarter hour. And so here we are having the most successful year of our professional lives, either of us. We have also experienced failure on a magnitudinal difference to anything we've ever experienced in our lives. And that is just the price of entry. Thank you very much. We've learned every single time. That's a it's a great lesson to learn. And thank you for sharing that story. It's probably it's right now my favorite story in the book, and I still have a few chapters to go um, because it's very clear and it's actually, it's funny and it'll make you tear up at the same time. Um, there's a great book. If you, uh, I, we have several books, uh, questions here. One of them is one of the books you recommend. I have the advanced reader edition that just says save two pages. So I was hoping to see that too. So we, um, I'll ask you that, but there's a great book called uh, Pizza Tiger. And it's about the guy who started Domino's Pizza. And there's a story of someone who achieved something great if there's a way that you can fail that he didn't do, I'll be surprised. And I think that's a great aha for entrepreneurs. You look up and you see Dave Hollis, you see Rachel, you see Gary Keller, whoever that is, and you think, wow, they're so successful. And what's great about this story and what you're sharing and these other people willing to be vulnerable is there's so many failures every single day. You just well, keep I, going. You learn crazy, from them and keep going. Now, the crazy thing is, and, I, and I've had to say this over and over and over, like, if there is a person in business, if there is a leader in an organization, if there's someone in your social circle who you admire with 100% guarantee your admiration is a reflection of their willingness to do things that others wouldn't, to make mistakes that others felt like they couldn't endure, and in there having persevered through them, they grew in a way that put them on a pedestal of sorts that you now look up to them for. And it's like normalizing, whether it's like listening to a podcast like How I Built This or reading a business book from, frankly, anyone who's ever written one that you admire. Like, I love Shoe Dog, right? Like, there is a story of Bill Knight building Nike that is just littered with failure story after failure story. And the beauty is in reading it, it changes the way that you think about failure being a thing that's bad for you because in the absence of failure, you cannot build the thing that anyone who's built something great has been able to. It's, it's it. a needed in ingredient. We have, uh, we've had this blessing in this last year of spending some time with John Maxwell in, in, in like the list of humans that you might hope might one day be a mentor. John has very graciously come alongside Rachel in this crazy last year and has helped speak some piece into normalizing what is an abnormal kind of year for her. And one of the things that he said to the two of us that has just been a real gift because, man, I've struggled in this transition from Disney where if something broke, it was fixed by like four of the greatest minds that could possibly be attached to it within 24 hours to now working inside of this entrepreneurial startup kind of you know work where Things go wrong so often, I was having a hard time not associating the failure of 
small business life to me as the operator of the small business. And he was like, leaders never have two great days in a row, right? Like if you are, if you are pursuing impact that matters, you inevitably, as the leader of something that matters, are going to have a hard time stringing two perfect, great days, no problems in a row. And the like freedom that comes from appreciating that, that's just the reality of anyone who's pursuing anything that matters. Now Can we make that two hours instead of two days? Because that no, would make me feel and that's better. Real. Yeah, no, no, that's real. Like, <laughs> we're in real time here. We're going through, like many people do at the end of the year, we're doing our, 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 our year-end close of the budget. We're forecasting what we're going to do for 2020. It gives us this beautiful opportunity to appreciate what was created in 2019. And because, man, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of anything that happened that wasn't exactly the plan. Uh, we're really diving into what went wrong. And I've just been in rooms for the last five, six days talking about things that we could have done better. You come out, you're like, do I feel good or not? I'm like, no, I, I just, <laughs> I've got the, the great thing is like, truly, I, we, we've been coming out. I'm like, we have the answer key. Right. If we hadn't actually pushed ourselves into that business that we hadn't done before, that partnership we hadn't considered before, we would not have the benefit of having made those mistakes to know not to make them in 2020. What a gift. Thank you very much. Love it. All right. We've got about 15 minutes before we have a hard stop. I want to honor your time. And we've got lots and lots of questions. Folks, if you have a question, please type it into the questions um, bar. And Jeff is flagging those for me. I've got a couple of selfish ones. Like I wanted you to tell the 3% story. I wanted to hear about your greatest fear. I personally, Wendy and I, we have a family with two entrepreneurs. And so we can look and see, wow, here's another couple living at a high level that are both striving together. What are some of the couples that you look to for inspiration? Uh, well, I'm putting you on the spot. If that's private, I get it because we didn't. I didn't get permission to ask that, but huh. it's hard. I look around. I'm like, who can you look to? And I looked at Jesse Itzler and um, Sarah. I can't think of her name. Yeah, Sarah. Yeah. What's interesting, like the the beauty of this last year, last two years, the like the girl wash your face and then girl stop apologizing really have uh, been an unbelievable entree into some great new circles of unbelievable friends who have also had some experiences that are a little uncharacteristic, but in their entrepreneurial journeys, in some ways have been able to say like, hey, this is going to feel weird, but don't worry. This is the, the kind of weird that it's supposed to feel. So yeah, Jesse and Sarah, Jesse's become a good friend. Tom Bilyeu and his wife, Lisa, who uh, built uh, First Quest uh, Nutrition and now run Impact Theory have been awesome, awesome friends, but also um, just the way that they pursue business. I mean, I don't know if you know Tom, but his brain works in a wholly, totally different way. He's an amazing, amazing guy. It's it to be honest, it's hard because uh, it is it's an it's an unusual thing to find couples who are working every single day together that are doing something in the field that we're in because the field that we're in is a it's a it's a weird field in and of itself. So um, we tend to try and dip into and find people who have expertise in an area of our bizarrely diverse business that we don't personally have expertise in. And so when we started having some things in, hey, we're trying to get some music licensing done for an app that we're going to launch. Well, then we had to find someone who either had app experience or music licensing experience. And we were lucky to find people who could kind of navigate us around those. But 
I wish we had more couples that could normalize a little bit of what we're working through. It's it's uh it's been the best. Wow. I mean, like our 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 partnership, our marriage, our love is as strong as it's ever been, and this has been the hardest year of our marriage period because of the amount of time we spend together, about because of the emotion of how we each process the business differently, right? Like I have a very interesting and different approach to problems in our business than she does. She gets excited about a problem in a way that I have to convince myself to be excited about. And so that just creates some fun and natural tension that, again, has produced awesome fruit. But we're still, we're still, I think, like any couple that works together will tell you, it just takes time to kind of get a bit of a working rhythm to figure out what are the things that you really got to spend extra time working out, figuring out? What are the hills that you don't want to die on? I love it. And I love that you guys value your marriage and your parenting roles as much as you value this idea of being successful. I, I kind of refuse to believe that you can't do all of those things well. I know you can't do them all at the same time. So compliments to you. I know that Wendy and I have looked to your marriage and the way your books as inspiration for we can have a really big life and be great parents and be a great partnership. So thanks for answering that kind of weird off the ball question. But I actually had two other people ask me that same question because they're on the same journey. They're looking for couples that want to strive and have a great marriage and be great parents. That's a rare combination. Well, I'll just, I, I will say this. There's a chapter of, uh, of the lie is that uh, you can find balance. Uh, I don't remember what the chapter name is exactly, but like my, my answer to someone who asks the question, what's your secret to the work last life chapter? Life? Right. There is no there is no such thing as, as balance. Balance is not real. It's a, it's like Bigfoot. And so our pursuit is centeredness and, and, and really being clear about what our personal and relationship values are seasonally, because there are times when we're going to have to go hard and that choice is going to come at the expense of some of the things that we might have normally had as luxuries when we didn't have to. And then there are times when we're going to go as hard or harder in rest and Sabbath and how we spend time with our family. Now, there's some like absolute mandatories around dinner time and technology free time and how we connect on weekends. But there is no like if you think that you're going to find some special unicorn balance book, like I just don't believe it to be a thing that exists. But having this having the centeredness with your habits with the way that you're front-loading your calendar, the way that your calendar is a reflection of your personal values or your relationship values, that's the key. I want to hit that because that was um, we both share that balanced life is a lie in both of our books. That's where our books overlap, and our audience does exactly what you're talking about. What I liked was your strategy. You and your wife do something you call front-loading. Can you really quickly give us just a tactical overview? You kind of meet weekly, and you're going like, through your calendars at a pretty high level. Will you just share really quickly what that looks like so people can hear it and maybe model yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is I say that the only time anyone ever gets upset is when they are surprised. And so yes. if you can Amen. avoid surprise in your personal relationships with your employees, in with the market, whatever it might be, trust, there will not be people who are upset. And so we set aside time every week to look through the calendar and in looking through the calendar, identify when we're working out, like self-care is very important to the strength of our relationship. If either of us are not full as individuals, we will not be full as a couple. So when are you, Dave, working out? When am I, Rachel, working out? 
who's taking the kids to their things. If there's a 1140 frozen performance, who's sitting in the front row on Thursday? Uh, who's got the doctor's appointments? What are we eating for our meals every single night? We know it ahead of time because we can't hope to show up as the versions of who we'd like to be in real time because our lives are too chaotic. Our four kids are too demanding. If we can plan, though, for how we'd like to show up ahead of time and assign who of us has the availability to lean in and pick up individual pieces of the responsibility of running this family during an objective time, like Sundays when we tend to do it. If I were to on Thursday morning say, hey, I need you to go to the 1140 uh, performance, what I am inadvertently saying is, I have done an assessment of the value of my time on my calendar today at 11 relative to yours. I've determined that my time is more valuable in my schedule for the thing that's already on my calendar, and I'd like you to go do it, which is maybe not the intention, but it could be the way that it's perceived. On Sunday, in the objectivity of front-loading time, it's about a negotiation void of emotion. There's just no, there's nothing emotional about who's going to show up on Thursday when you're dealing with it on Sunday. I love that. Um, my first thought when you say all of that is, oh my gosh, that must take forever. But y'all been doing this for a while. In reality, what kind of time investment is it for you guys to front load? You're planning your meals and your counters. 30 it's, minutes. It's 30 minutes. There are apps you can use. We happen to use one called Cozy, but like you can use anything. And it's just a shared thing that we use ourselves. And I mean, we don't do this by ourselves. So we have a nanny that helps out with the kids. She's got access to this thing too. So if someone needs to be prepped and ready for Cub Scouts, because I'm going to be pulling up in the driveway to pick that kid up at 5.55 PM on a Tuesday, well, good. She knows it. He's ready. I'm now picking him up and getting into that darn scout meeting. But it's, it is not relative to the kind of value you get. The idea of meal prepping and calendar prepping is there's so much benefit for a very small time investment. Love that. Thank you. Wendy and I sync up our calendars on Sundays and we do meal prep. And we're trying to get our kids involved in the meal prep to role model to them planning. This is how you have a healthy diet. You have to plan for it. Yeah. If you don't plan for it, you end up with fast food. Um, there's just no way around it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go through a couple more questions. One of our longtime fans, Madeline Ellis, asked, What's the number one thing, because she works with her husband in her business, what's the number one thing that you and Rachel do uh, on a regular basis that makes working together easier? And you said radical candor before, so maybe what's the second most important thing? We have a standing date night every single Thursday, no matter what. No, it doesn't. And, and here's the thing. There are certain Thursdays where we do not like each other. We still love each other and we're going on a date. You know, like our, our like of each other in this working together has been a little more fluid. Our love has been constant. And the thing that we have committed to is dating each other. Like the pursuit of my partner is a thing that we each write down in an intentional goal setting journal of ours every single day. The word pursuit, it's an active word. And our calendar has to reflect the active nature of our interest in this exceptional relationship. So we have to find time because we could talk about this business. But one, we love what we do and we are blessed to be able to do it. But we have to find time to go and actually pour into the relationship outside of the business so that when we're in the business as much as we are, we still love each other, even on the days we don't like each other. <laughs> okay, I have to, because I role model this in our business. My wife and I, for close to 10 years, have had date night on Wednesday night. How did you pick Thursday night? 
Honestly, I can remember when our youngest, who's now 12 years old, was maybe three or four weeks old. We went out to a restaurant that had long tablecloths, put him in the rocker under the table that was loud and had our first date. It happened to be a Thursday. And on that day, 12 years ago, we committed that as long as we were together for the rest of time, Thursday would be our day. We just arbitrarily picked it because that was the day we felt like we could get out of the house for the first time. But it works. It works for us. Our experience, we tried Fridays and Saturdays, but we couldn't do it every week because we couldn't get a babysitter. Really? We moved it Wednesday. So I was like, I was curious if y'all had the same experience. It sounds like you just went to where there was no competition and you can make it happen every week. Here's the thing. I love it being on Thursdays or I love it being on Wednesdays because it gives us something in the week to look forward to that's going to cut that week up a little bit. But having here's the thing. You, you have to organize your life around having the support to make that thing you say is important happen. Having We have a sitter set up literally for the rest of time. I know when the sitter is coming in 2050. We're, we're good. Love it. I love it. You're going to go on a wheelchair race someday. But you'll have a babysitter. That's awesome. Um, I got time maybe for one more. Keep the questions coming. I know we had a previous request. You mentioned two books. We talked about mindset. You talked about the power of habit. Is there anything else that you would recommend on your journey to becoming the best version of you um, that you would absolutely recommend? Uh, I mean, I Brendan Burchard has become a friend and his High Performance Habits is a fantastic book. I love that. Uh, Ryan Holiday, also in Austinite. I mean, he's yes. written a handful of books, but The Obstacle is the Way was a really, really amazing book in the midst of my choosing to see these obstacles as for me and not against me. But his most recent book, uh, you know, has really been a powerful one. I just spent a couple of days away to really be in silence, to just like take a minute and turn off my phone and actually focus on focus. And it has been amazing. Uh, in like stillness the business. is the key, right? That's the book you're oh, referring to. Yes, yeah, stillness is the key. It's and it's and it's a fantastic read. Um, the book that we just had our leadership team read that I loved. Uh, Horst Schultz has a book called Excellence Wins, which is about he uh, he started Ritz Carlton Hotels. It's just like this approach to defining. Uh, I call them operating principles. Ray Dalio's got a book called Principles that I love, but like this idea of like just defining what you stand for, and then just like living it every single day so that you can create the brand, whether it's a personal brand or a professional brand. Um, I dig that one. Uh, If you are interested in a great business book, Patty McCord has this book called Powerful that we just recently read. Uh, She was the human resources person at Netflix. Fantastic read and like hardcore about how to set a standard and hold people accountable inside of an organization. So um, anyway, that's that's huge. You've probably filled up half a year for most people. And I want to make sure I remind them, um, go to Amazon. I did before this call, pre-order your copy of Get Out of Your Own Way. Um, If you go to getoutofyourownwaythebook.com, you can get the first chapter of this on audio and you can go ahead and preview it. And I'll tell you, it's very powerful. Um, and it's not, I mean, that's probably a good 15 minutes of audio right there. It's a solid read. 30 minutes. There we go. I thought it was a little bit longer chapter. So you, you led strong. Um, it is a good book. I will attest. And I'm very biased. I, I don't like a lot of business books. I like the ideas. I don't like the writing. It's, it's very well written. There's great storytelling. Um, I'm actually advocating very strongly. You go do it. 
I want to thank you before I say goodbye to everyone and and issue a challenge for them. We would like all of them to join us on our kick the year off with a habit challenge, which should be on the screen. But I want to applaud you and Rachel for getting out of your way so that we can get content like this and you can share it because the most successful people willing to be vulnerable to show what reality of success looks like, it allows people in the audience not to be beating themselves up. If I was just like Dave, I could do this. If I was just like Rachel, truth is you face all the same challenges. You have a quantum leap in terms, I have two kids, you have four. So I can't even get my head around that <laughs> challenge, right? Y'all have taken on some big things and y'all are changing lives. So I just want to compliment and show you gratitude. Thank you so much for doing that. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with our crowd. Right on, Jay. I really appreciate being here. Listen, I'm going to end with this thing. I got this on my arm. It's my reminder every day when I look in the mirror, a ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships are built for. I would challenge every listener here, if there's any part of you that resonates with feeling stuck, with feeling underutilized and your potential feels like you could be made for more but haven't yet tapped into it, my problem with staying connected to certainty and not leaving that dock was a thing that kept me in my way forever and ever and ever. And I've now left that dock for the choppy waters where growth lives. That's the only way you can be fulfilled. You were built for this, so you got to believe it and get out there. Love that. Love that, folks. Thank you, Dave. Thanks to your whole team for making this happen. I know that we had to really fight a lot of calendar oh. challenges, so thank you. And everyone listening, we're going to rebroadcast this on the One Thing podcast. So you can catch it there, um, get another dose. Um, you know, Space repetition is a great way to learn. And again, we hope you'll join us in the new year at the onething.com habits. Form your first power habit of the year. Make it a difference. And given the fact you just listed like 12 books, hey, I'm going to recommend this. Things Changed My Life, Readers or Leaders. What about reading 10 pages every day for 66 days? You'd knock out like three books right there, folks. So, so join us. Again, Dave, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Right on, Jay. Thanks for having me. There you have it, our conversation with Jay Papasan and Dave Hollis, author of the new book, Get Out of Your Own Way. If you'd like to listen to the entire interview, see the video that goes with it, and check out our upcoming webinar, visit theonething.com slash webinar. That's with the number one in the URL. Out of everything you heard in this episode, what's the one thing you can put into action immediately? We encourage you to pause the episode and search for the answer. And if this episode brought value to you, who's one person you know or care about that would benefit from listening to it? Would you share it with them? And if you're that person, welcome to The One Thing Podcast. Click the subscribe button so that all future episodes will automatically be downloaded to your device. And for all of you, please consider leaving us a rating or review on your podcast player of choice as it helps us reach more people and make a greater impact. Thanks so much for listening to The One Thing Podcast. We look forward to being with you in the next episode.